Hey, you got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and I'm here with Joel Wise from the Precision Rifle Network. We just finished our three-day mile-high precision rifle class, and we're actually sitting in the car but not moving out in front of Mile High um, to uh, kind of bring you this podcast today. Holy God, I just thought your Jeep went by. Uh, <laughs> but uh, So, Joel, glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming to the class this weekend and uh, getting to talk to you. Yeah, it was great. It was a great class. Really enjoyed it. Happy to be able to, to hang out with you for a little bit of a, a podcast. It's kind of fun. Yeah, now give everybody a background for those who might not know um, the Precision Rifle Network. You're sort of like the official video guys of the PRS and um, you, you, you do a, a YouTube channel video stuff, and so you've kind of you're moving around the industry, kind of both sides, media and competition, but uh, mainly on the PRS side of things. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So uh, you, you know, I'll try to make this quick because there's a little bit of a history there. But um, first precision rifle class for me um, was Gunworks uh, out in Wyoming, um, and this was probably five or six years ago and Gunworks was strictly doing hunting training. They weren't in the competition scene yet. And um, I took a class from them and it was great. It was an eye opener uh, for me as far as long range hunting goes because that's kind of why I got into long ranges. You know, I grew up in Iowa, longest range there was you know a couple hundred yards and I knew I wanted to go out west hunting. And so I was like, man, I gotta be able to stretch out the distance a little bit. And so started looking around at classes to learn this whole thing, long range shooting. Found Gunworks, took a class, uh, loved it. Great facility, great guys out there. Um, and as you know, they're now kind of doing um, you know competition yeah, stuff too. Yeah, with Phil and Kalen, everything really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first kind of introduction to to long range, and uh, got a custom rifle built, and and just started shooting. Really, just self taught um, as far as all that goes. That was probably six years ago, something like that. Now, um, since then, I've taken uh, precision rifle classes from from K and M and um, Jim C and and now yours, which you know is uh, well. I'm sure we'll get into and talk about. But as far as the videography, uh, photography stuff goes, you know, I I kind of had a hobby uh, as a um, as a wildlife photographer um, for mm -hmm. for some years, and uh, and some guys got to see in some of my work, and they're like, man, you're really good at this. Um, you know, you ever thought about bringing your camera along to these matches and just taking some pictures? And I was like. Yeah, I guess I could do that once, you know. So I took a bunch of pictures for guys just in the club, the club level matches there in Missouri, and um, uh, guys were like, "Man, you're you're really great at this. Thanks for doing this." You know, would you you ever consider doing any video? I'm like, well, it doesn't really transfer over. Video, <laughs> video, video is an entire different animal, yeah, uh, than photography, you know, at a professional level. And so I'm like, "Man, I'll I'll give it a try." You know, what what can it hurt? So uh, again, kind of self taught on the video side of things. I mean, I understand. Uh, lighting and, and shot composition and all that kind of stuff but so guys loved the work I was doing and um, so it kind of you know took off from a hobby into a job and here we are fast forward you know some years later um, and yeah this year uh, just kind of as a contract deal um, Shannon Kay and, and Precision Rifle Series hired me to to uh, attend uh, a set number of, of two-day matches and just kind of you know, record, um, you know, take, take photos and do video, uh, and just help them out with that as they're kind of promoting, mm -hmm. you know, new. I like watching your stage stuff and the different things you have. And, and I've been a big fan of what you've been doing on, on that side of it. So, um, I catch them on the Facebook pages when you post them and stuff like that. 
Uh, we won't get into the the one little drama one. We'll talk about that later, I guess. Uh, <laughs> which it, it, it's important, I think, to 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 show all aspects of it. But it, it, it's bringing a good light to people so they can understand what a stage looks like. They can understand how the different matches are run and what the event. And I and I think you you have a good eye for showing guys. Hey, if I want to get into this, where do I go to see it? And it's your stuff is probably the one of the better places to go. That's sort of an unbiased look at it from a. You know, you you have more of a journalistic approach rather than a, um, you know, I'm doing this for them and just for them kind of deal. So I like that. I think that's a cool way of looking at it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, try to, I try to be fairly unbiased. You know, you know you've said a, a number of times in your podcasts and videos and things like, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not charging for the videos that I do. Right, you, you right. Know, I'm kind of the same way. It's like, if I want to review a product, um, you know, few and far between are the times that I've gotten a product for free um, to review. Mm -hmm. You know, I tend to have to buy everything myself if I want to review a product. And, and um, I, I think that's just a more pure way of doing it. You know, you don't want guys thinking you're, you're some kind of a shill out here, you know. And, and I mean, I just sent stuff back myself. I had stuff that was sent to me for a, a, like a video review. And I just couldn't see it, man. I couldn't, I, I, it just didn't fit in, in where I'm coming from and didn't seem like it would fit my audience correctly. I sent it back. You know, it's like, hey, man, sorry, this isn't going to work out for me. I, I can't, I'm not going to try to sell you on this product when I don't believe that, you know, there, there, was, valid, there, there was valid elements from a physics standpoint and all this other stuff, but... It, it didn't translate to me to what we're doing today. And maybe five years from now it will, and it'll, it'll take off. But now nah, I sent it back, and I think that's important to have that integrity. And, and you could see that, that you have that integrity with stuff and how you're, you know, just the fact you've called out things you've seen that you didn't like uh, that might go against the, the, uh, the normal, um, the talking points, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think that's a big thing for, you know, why. And then... Somewhere in there, we got in the conversation of uh, come on out to the class and take a look at it. I don't remember even exactly how that went, um, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't even recall. Yeah. I mean, I knew I said come on out, but I don't even recall what the context was of telling you. Anytime you wanted to come to one of our classes, just let me know. Yeah, that was at the Precision Rifle Expo last Oh, was fall. it? Okay. And we met there, and I kind of, I kind of, uh, you know, surprised you with, "Hey, let's do a quick four or five minute video mm -hmm. on uh, on your idea of fundamentals, your take on the fundamentals of, of marksmanship." And um, yeah, we just got to kind of shooting the bull afterwards. And um, I said, "Man, I'd love to take one of your classes, but I, yeah, I can't really." travel up to Alaska and you're like, ah, we do them in Colorado. You should come take one. You yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, here I am. That's awesome. So yeah, getting into that then, what did you, in, in good, bad and different, however it is, go into kind of this weekend with classes we did Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, we had good weather, although the wind wasn't as cooperative as we wanted it to be. It was light, but tricky. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't get crazy winds, but go over like what you thought of like the approach of the classroom and give everybody who's heard me talk about it or heard us mention, you know, either the Alaska, because it's not dissimilar to Alaska's class, other than we have a bigger group and a different dynamic with Mark and I versus Mike and I. Um, but you, you had a firsthand experience and um, hopefully you can relate that to everybody out there listening. Yeah. Yep. So, <clears throat> yeah, I didn't know exactly what to expect. Like I say, coming from, um, you know, Gunworks class or a, or a K&M uh, class, you know, there's 
those are more geared to, well, one was hunting specific, one was competition specific. And so coming to yours, which, you know, I've been hearing you talk about fundamentals, you know, now for years as I've been just kind of following you and, um, you know, I've been a member of Sniper's Hide for, for years and years. And so um, there's just those conversations that happen. And so mm-hmm. I didn't really know what to expect, um, but it de- definitely did not disappoint. So, you know, getting there Friday, um, you know, we show up, we're in the classroom and, you know, you've got a presentation, we're talking about um, the fundamentals. And you, you did a really great job, I feel like, of um, just providing definitions, you know. Built, breaking it down, right. Breaking it down, providing definitions, giving context um, for what we were about to about to do for the next couple of days. And uh, it was a good, good building blocks, you know, for, for that. You really, you, you tailored it. You know, there was a whole bunch of different styles of shooters in there. We had, you know, we had hunters, we had competition shooters, we had brand new people uh, on the line. You know, we had guys uh, show up, didn't even know how to mount their scopes correctly on, right. on their rifles. You know, and so yeah, you saw the one that was up on the handguard. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I tried to get a picture of that one. <laughs> but and and yeah, so we had like basically three different blocks of people. We had sort of that group that was new that crossed more into hunting and didn't know. We had guys that two were repeat students who had been to my class before and a little bit more experience. And then there was guys like you and Cullen who have a lot of experience, who are really good shooters. You've been around the block and been to different places. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, you know, high experience, medium experience and no experience level of class that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And that's common for a lot of our classes to see those three buckets of, of shooter that we now have to speak to over three days and keep every bucket entertained. Yeah. It's sports entertainment in a way, so you have to kind of cater to all three. You can't say, well, Joel is here and knows so much, I'm going to ignore John who knows nothing. you know. Or I can't go, well, John doesn't know anything and Joel knows everything, now i got to ignore Joel to help John. So it, it's kind of finding that balance of where you have to kind of navigate the student. And, and I... And I kind of think we we look at that on a, on a on a really critical level to not pick favorites and focus on one guy only but i mean you could yeah. talk on that cuz you see yeah. how we try to bounce i and you know that was one thing that i definitely wanted to point out to you and commend you on is that my fear in coming into this class um you know for myself and even for for Cullen um i did not want you guys to treat me differently just because I, you know, do these videos and all that kind of stuff. I, I try to tell people as often as I can, I'm just a regular dude. Like, right. I, I do not know everything. I don't, I don't want to come into a class like this and be treated differently. You know what I mean? I, I want you to treat me like I literally know nothing. I would, I would rather have that than for you to skip things o- or skip over things, excuse me, assuming that I know them already. Right, you right. You know what I mean? And, and so you guys did a great job of that. And, um. I, I feel like you filled in some gaps for me. Um, you know, there was some trigger work we had to, we had to refine uh, for me through the weekend, which was, you know, I've got myself questioning now on my other rifles whether, I, whether my trigger press was really good all along well, after all. And, and you can <laughs> kind of back that. You, um, you had a new rifle. Uh, you picked up a rifle just before the class, uh, AIAT. 
and it has that two-stage trigger and I noticed you kind of massaging that trigger and clearly you were trying to learn it and feel it but in front of the shots you were kind of playing with it and that was one of the big things that I picked up that you were moving your hand around that trigger quite a bit and so it was like Joel you're kind of rolling that trigger and sliding in and and you were sliding across your finger and and so it was it was like you know married to that pad married to that pad and then by the second and late in the second and third day you were totally doing that but it, it's so subconscious that people don't realize they're doing these things that we're looking at you know because with me looking at you and, and and knowing your experience level now i have to be nitpicky so where I'm going with you is, is I'm picking out like silly little things that I might not mention to somebody else. But for you, it's like, hey, if you just come straight here and do that. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's something to talk about transitioning from a single stage to an AI double uh, two stage trigger, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you can help me here because I'm, I'm so brand new to AIs. <laughs> I don't even know what the trigger pull weight on that thing is what is it three and a half yeah but it's a split but it's three and a half is what it should be okay. out of the box so you got basically uh you know like a, a one pound on the front and then the two on the back kind of thing with that break yeah but it's divided up into the two stages sure so but it is it is split over three and a half pounds so that was interesting you know i i typically so on my match guns um and honestly we could go down a rabbit hole here but i'm going to try not to do that but um, you know, in my competition guns, I typically would run a 14-ounce trigger. Um, you know, for years I've been doing that. Now, uh, since the, the ND video and, and all that thing, I, I turned my, my triggers up to a pound and a half, you know, on my, on my single-stage competition trigger. That's just where I run it. Mm -hmm. I decided to turn it up and run a match and see if it had any effect whatsoever on my ability to perform, and it didn't at all. In fact, the very match that I turned up the triggers, I won that match. There you <laughs> so, go. So I'm like, it it doesn't matter at all. And and, I, and that's what I had mentioned with your videos when we were talking about, I said like that 16, 18 ounce should be of a happier space than going down in the 12, 8s and 4s yeah. because you, you get a little bit more positive control. You can understand where that break's going to be and you're not, you don't hear that shit, shit shit when guys are touching the trigger when they don't mean it to you know yes so no that's a great kind of a great lesson out there that that you saw a benefit in doing that mm -hmm. because you witness guys having nds mm -hmm. and then so transfer that now to the ai trigger which is you know not a single stage it's two stage and it's not a pound and a half it's three pounds you know or three and a half um and so i worried about that a little bit this weekend you know kind of um coming to a class getting a brand new gun uh, with a, a trigger or a type of trigger that I've never touched before. And so um, it, it really was a non-issue. It took me a little bit to get used to, like you said, finding where my proper trigger placement was because it's completely different grip and a different grip angle than I'm used to and everything. So yeah, I was. I was you know farting around with it. Finally figured that out. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. So uh, yeah, I, the one thing about the AI trigger that I'd like maybe some clarification from you on... Uh, thought about this after the class is you know on that two-stage ai trigger you've got your take up and then you kind of come to that wall and then you break the shot and you know the over travel you, the that's over travel, what, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a break and freeze and if you look at us we don't drive back to the wall guys will drive that over travel on an ai trigger back to the wall 
and you really don't. It's a break freeze. And part of that is you're not doing the undue influence of like, and I talk about like barrel harmonics. Your barrel harmonics transfer to your action, which is metal, okay? Metal barrel to a metal action. Then a metal trigger, your shoe. And what you're trying to do with that two-stage trigger the way AI has it is it's the musical note, right? It's not bringing it all the way back to a sharp sound. It's instead bringing it and keeping it in the middle so you're not changing the tension on that shoe and it's still letting that trigger shoe kind of ride freely in between the plates. But if you bury it back to the wall, now you basically have to bury it back to the wall every time the same way under the same timing. Or if you break and freeze and you don't go back that almost quarter of an inch to the wall, you're floating in the middle and you're kind of not creating an undue influence. And as well, like it's part of like a flinch and a, a it's a crush is what it is. It's a trigger crush. But you're crushing that trigger. And when people tend to crush the trigger and drive back to the wall and, and, and bury it to the wall, they'll also move either their shoulder or their arm. And they'll put a little micro amount of influence in because of the shoulder and arm. So if you basically break, freeze, and don't bury it, you're, you're being neutral is the best way I can put it. So that's the hardest thing. And, and it takes a while because everybody wants that movement. But if you look at it and if you, if you turn the rifle to the side with your finger on there and almost dry practice by looking at it, you can see where you go break and freeze. It's like next to no movement on your trigger finger. But if you bury it, you're adding almost like a half inch of movement, mm -hmm. you know, because you got that first stage you're taking up. You hit the wall of the second, you break the second, and then you drive back to the wall on the back. And so you're making this big sweeping movement versus just break freeze, which might be an eighth of an inch of movement. So it's almost like a half inch versus an eighth of an inch. Mm -hmm. And that's why you don't bury that back to the wall that way. But it is a learning situation, dry fire repetitions to get used to that trigger being like that. Mm -hmm. So um, definitely something that you want to look at. Yeah, it was a new experience for me. But, you know, you and Mike um, made, it, uh, made the class, you know, very easy to understand. You know, I, I would say dumbed it down. It's not really the right way to put it, but it... You know. I try to simplify the concepts, you know, I mean, even down to the WTF, um, you know, the, the wind we did, the miles per hour with the wind, we're trying to simplify something that has been blown up into either a voodoo thing or, oh, you got to be tricky to understand the wind. You know, you got to be this to understand these concepts, you know, oh, you're not, but it's not, you can simplify these concepts down to such a degree where the hunter understands, even though the comp guy understands, and everybody's on the same page. And it's just presenting the material in a way that is more universally easy to get instead of you having to be some connoisseur to get it. You know, it's like, it, it, it's, it's, I guess it's taking wine tasting into kind of a beer drinker's level, you know, <laughs> is, is a way I would look at it. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, just kind of moving on with kind of my analysis of the class there. It's just, you know, Friday, terminology, 
um, setting context, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we get out to the line probably very quickly. I don't remember how long you, you spent on slides, not very long. Uh, but then we were out on the firing line and you were doing the fundamental evaluation, which I found super helpful. Um, and, you know, you've got a list for people who haven't seen it. Frank's got a list of like 20 things. I don't even know how many, but like 20 things that you're you're watching every single shooter as they as they put five rounds on target at 100 yards. And you're just diagnosing, you know, everything from how their body lines up um, to their, their trigger press to their, their cheek weld. Are they, you know, are they hunting in the scope, you know, trying to, you know, maybe the scope's not set up correctly for them. All those kinds of things. Are their heels flat on the ground, uh, you know. Are they straight behind the rifle or are they little green army man canted off yep. to the side? It, it, there's so many different little things, um, you know, and I came into that thinking, well, I, I feel like I got a pretty good handle on that. But you, you still had, um, you know, a small handful of things that I could be better at. And I really appreciated that. You know, trigger uh, was one. Breathing was another one for me. You know, for me, um, I was taught and kind of what I didn't understand about my breathing I, you know, I typically will, in just in my natural breathing, I'll get to the bottom of my breathing cycle and I'll hold my breath right there. And to me, I'm holding my breath only for a few seconds, but after you pointed out that my breathing was incorrect, I started paying attention to how long I was holding my breath. And sometimes, and it was so inconsistent, sometimes I'd hold my breath for a second or two. Right. Sometimes I found out I was holding my breath for like 10 seconds. And, and that's why I tell people, you have no concept of time when you're holding your breath. In that situation, you don't know how long you're doing it, and you end up doing it inconsistently. Um, you know, as far as uh, how that part of it goes, and it creates that vertical stringing, it creates some, you're breaking it. It's almost like having an inconsistent cheek weld when you're breaking or holding your breath in different ways. It would be very similar to even in a handgun world of having it just slightly out of center in your grip. So each time you're, you're breathing and holding it in a different way, it's a different grip on the gun. And so you'll get, I mean, it's small. Somebody could still be shooting a half minute group, but maybe it's vertically strung a half minute where if they eliminated that, it would go down a three eighths or a quarter inch group. And so that's why we get nitpicky with that kind of stuff. And especially breathing is a big one in, in, um, you know, trigger control, of course, and follow through are the two biggest, but, um, mm -hmm. breathing is, is one. Cause I, that's my worst problem in bad habit from training scars from years ago is breathing. I find I hold my breath at times as well. And it's the one thing I have to fight through the most of getting my breathing right. Mm -hmm. But it was very helpful to point that out because then what it forced me to do because I had to, because I had to break my shot during just that normal natural respiratory pause. So what that required me to do was take a couple of steps back and go, okay, well, how is my body set up, and how is my how's my rear bag? Do I have it just right, you know, my natural point of aim, so that when I when I do reach that natural respiratory pause, boom, my center floating dot is right, right on the where you want where it. I want it. Yep. And so that's that was the part that I worked all weekend. To I don't know why. And, and those are all scam calls. Sorry, oh, I keep, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have my on airplane mode. And so I'm gonna have to edit this up a little, but, uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right that, um, 
that you, you set that up, that's part of your NPA check, that's part of your dry fire, that's part of that pre-shot checklist. And what you're going through is you're making sure that when you break at the bottom, you're collapsing on your skeletal structure. And there's a little bit of a gap in there. When you break at your natural respiratory pause, you get a little bit of, of still downward movement where you're already on your skeletal system and your lungs and heart are out of the equation. So you, you want to make sure that reticle is right where it needs to be on that natural respiratory pause. And that's part of that setup that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that was good. That was a very good tweak to, to how I was shooting, you know, my fundamentals. It was, it was in fact, it, I would call it a gap in my training over the years is, is that I really was never taught properly how to breathe, uh, how to break the shot at that natural respiratory pause. And, um, so I'm very thankful for that uh, from the class. And if you think sure. about it, too, with breathing, you know, just to even go beyond, there is nothing in our everyday life we do where we hold our breath. And it could be from driving. It could be banging a nail. It could be doing all these other things. And it's, um, it's why we, we try to hold our breath is because we're trying to get steadier. But once we start holding our breath, our body starts throwing up red flags. And it's saying this is not a natural state for us. And those red flags that it's holding up are what creates the negative aspect of, of doing that. And it's not just a case of holding your breath is no big deal. Holding your breath starts putting a whole bunch of processes in place inside our body subconsciously in our brain. Because, I mean, think about it. If we run down the street right now and run back up here, we don't have to tell our body to breathe more. It's going to automatically start breathing heavy. It automatically knows we're exerting ourselves. It does so much on a subconscious level. Well, now you're, you're giving it cues to start trying to fix something. And we don't want those cues in there. And that's why we want to make sure breathing is a big, important part of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely was a benefit to me. Um, yeah, that was great. So yeah, the, the fundamental eval, loved it. Uh, that was awesome. And uh, I think it was, what do we do next? We kind of, we sat down and just did 100 yard zeros and started gathering dope after that. Yeah, we had to tweak everybody's rifles, uh, remove some stuff. That's right. That's right. So it, the, the, the 100 yard stuff is setting up the rifle zeros and letting people go through that fundamental, uh, going that process of making sure everything's in place without any stressors. You know, so it's a slow, easy, five-shot groups, check everybody's zeros, move equipment as needed. Because you may find, like you were saying, hunting for your sight picture. We got to move a scope back. And, and then there was guys who were off to the side, little green army men, where when we put them straight behind the rifle, now their scope's got to come back. So we're moving all that kind of equipment and setting them up, raising bipods for people, getting them a little higher onto their elbows and off their forearms. Um... So we're doing a lot of that kind of stuff for the 100-yard zeros and before we start moving out to mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was good. Um, it, you know, I think one thing for me, too, was just getting that extra height under the bipod. Uh, I, you know, I was taught, like a lot of people, um, you want to be as low to the ground as possible, right? You can't get any lower than, than prone other than dead. Right, <laughs> like right. We were t joking about that, but... Um, you know, so you assume that you're supposed to run your bipod, you know, all the way down as low as you can. But then what that does is, you know, when you're laying behind that gun, you're straining your neck, you're just making everything harder. You know, you're, you're canting your head over to the side instead of having it 
you know, up, up and vertical as vertical, much as you can. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was, uh, it was helpful to, to bump that up a couple notches and then, you know, just uh, needed a slightly taller rear bag I found. Um, you know, for some of the, when you're laying on uneven ground, that was kind of news to me. You know, I have my, my, uh, I always call it the mini game changer and that's wrong. Um, it's the pint, pint size. Yeah, yeah. Pint. So I use the pint size game changer for my rear bag. And I like that one a lot, to be honest. And it's great. You know, it's, it's heavy. It, it works really well, uh, for 90% of the, of the prone shooting that I do when I need a rear bag. But I found kind of out here in Colorado on the, you know, the uneven ground that we were shooting on and, and things like that. I needed a little bit taller rear bag. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're going out and up. So you're always going to have to kind of pick up the front to go out to the farther targets because our range just slightly slopes up as you go out. Mm -hmm. So you'll find that if you're too low, you start running into a problem that you can't get a rear bag underneath correctly for the farther shots. So that forces you to raise your bipod up for the extended distances. Mm -hmm. And then we should, we took you guys all the way to a mile. So, yeah. you know, yeah, that was pretty great. Yeah. By the end of the class, and we can talk about that later. I was able to connect at a, at a mile with four shots in a row and I called it quits after that. I was <laughs> like, I'm, I'm done, especially in that wind. Mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah. It started getting trickier in the afternoon because um, yeah. those fronts came through on Sunday afternoon, but we had light winds all weekend. Just, behind us sideways couldn't make up its mind what it wanted to do but it was just it was just light enough to be annoying but not so heavy where we can get crazy with the the wind part of it but we still did a lot on the wind side yeah with the chime and all that yeah that that target was was super helpful and you guys i'm sure frank you might be able to show them someplace social media or something maybe they've already seen it and i was and it was new to me alone but He's got kind of a target um, that it, it, it's it's got um, I don't know it looks like a xylophone or a wind chime yeah with, yeah xylophone is with, what we call it yeah right. with thin um, you know long plates hanging down side by side that they paint different colors um, so it, it ends up being a very wide surface area um, to figure out wind but you know you can end up holding whatever wind you think you need to hold based on their their system which we may we may or may not get into here during the conversation but um, it was very helpful you know you could you could put four tenths of wind on there on that plate and you're like you could see which one of those yeah each chime is two tenths wide it's one mil total at the distance we put it and then on top of that, we use that confirmation target where we, we paint it very similar. So we get them to do a wind chime call because we want them to hit the center white plate. And then we want them to translate that to a regular piece of steel. So they're, and, and you're moving a couple hundred yards over. So you're really kind of not being able to immediately translate it to what you just did. But you have to remember, this was my call. This was what's going on. Now bring it to that plate. And we're trying to get you to get the white stripe down the center of the plate, which is only like three inches wide painted right. on a 12-inch plate. Right. You know. I personally, I said to Cullen that that would make a great first stage for, for, every, for every match. <laughs> I just, it would be so helpful to shooters to have that be the first stage that they shot. You know, in our club series in Missouri, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that Buzz Masters has done in the past at, at club-level matches is um, everybody lines up and you just kind of go right down the line, shooter one, shooter two, shooter three, 
and every single person shoots at a cold bore okay. type target. Yep, yep. And this kind of a target uh, would be really helpful. A cold bore with a chime? A cold bore with a chime to yeah. start off with. Especially because point two wide. Dude, it would get everybody their wind. I don't know. Some people might call that cheating right off the start, but, you know, the wind changes throughout the day, so it's not really that much of a cheating, but it would definitely um, be fun and it would build guys' confidence with what the wind is actually doing to start with. And it puts yeah. that emphasis uh, on that first round wind call skill set where you're not going to be able to go an edge of the plate on the chime is going to give you the worst score. You know what I mean? You right. can't do just an edge of plate because we have the, the you know, there's five uh, different chimes there and the center the, is the important. So we got the two on the uh, on either side and then two more out, if you if you just edged it, it's not really going to work well for you. So you can even go beyond and shoot the outside part of the wind, or it could be light enough where you're shooting the inside part, but you're nowhere near the white one that you want to impact. I think it would be a good stage for a match. But like you said, you just wonder, you know, it, to, to me, what, what, why not? It, it, it's helping people get that wind, understand the wind better and the wind's so important it's funny that it kind of gets ignored in a lot of ways it does it's like this it's like this you know it's a secret at the matches you know what'd you hold for wind hey man figure it out yourself you know guys mm -hmm. you know what i mean they don't want to share what their wind call is because you know they're in a competition and it's you know i do this stuff for fun you know so when the competition starts to um you know be more important than the relationships or the right. fun that's where i'm like mm, you know i Let's go back to just having more fun. And and I think it's kind of translated into that where it's it's hard to strike that balance of a good time in taking it so serious. And, and some guys just can't do that. There is no in-between. It's either I'm here to have a good time and to, and to play this game on a weekend that I'm not worried about or I'm here to win it all and it's everything or nothing. And it's so hard to find people with the the happy middle ground. You know, who will, who will take it serious on some levels where they're doing so well, but so unserious that they're willing to throw it out there with anybody and help them. You know, it's like, oh, here, this is what I'm doing. This is, did really good. Try it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and instead trying to keep the cards close to a vest. But ah, what are you going to do? Yep, it is what it is. Yep. They're two different worlds, you know, and that's something that I think maybe we wanted to talk about a little bit was just that you've got you've got real world practical skills um you know that kind of fit better with uh with hunters with guys that are doing this kind of stuff for a profession uh and then you've got the gaming side of it you know prs nrl mm -hmm. club, club series matches and um they are really different animals obviously the skill sets transfer over um at least they should you know it it's just that uh you know some guys I don't know. It's like they just want to play the game and they don't who cares about who cares about marksmanship and fundamentals. Hey man, a hit's a hit. It doesn't matter if I hit, you know, a top left corner of a full-size ipsic. Right. You know, and they could care less to 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 learn actually learn how to adjust to center with their next shot. You know what I mean? Just... And, and that's a missing element, a trial and error. And like I said, we try to be a little bit more with my class, a little bit more universally true versus saying this shortcut is better, you know, because there are a ton of shortcuts. There's shortcuts that I would take because I'm a little smaller. There's shortcuts a taller guy can take because they can reach things a little different. There, there's ways that your equipment, you can buy, you know, we're going to get an MDT, an ACC. We're going to put a weight system in it. 
we're going to put a game changer on it, and then we're going to get the best barreled action we can to make up the hits for us. You know, that was the thing I was going to do the demo where the rifle hits the target. And when you brought your camera out, I'm like, all right, now I'm, I can't get it right. I said, now that somebody has a camera, I'm going to miss on the first couple shots. And which normally doesn't happen because people don't have the cameras out. But I got it. The, 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 the bottom line is you can set the rifles up on the tripod. And if it's lined up correctly with the wind, it'll hit. You know, where the variable comes in is us. So the fact is we want to try it. We can do two things. We can do everything we can to eliminate us and hopefully get away with letting the rifle do all the work. Or we can work on us so we're not the weak link in the system and we're not that, that variable. And that's my approach towards it more so than saying, you know, let's eliminate us. Because we can, we can spend a ton of money and I could say, hey man, you're going to come into Mile High and you're going to buy all the best equipment, you're going to buy the weight systems, you're going to buy all this stuff, and you're going to have a 26 pound, 6 millimeter, that's hand loads and everything, and you're good to go. And you'll do really, really well letting the gun do a lot of the work. Or you could say, I'm going to take it and use something a little more practical, a little bit more crossover. And I'm going to learn to drive the rifle a little bit better so I'm not the weak link in the influence. And that's where I come from from that. Yep. And that's exactly what I was missing. I feel like that was the missing piece for me. And it's the direction that I'm headed. You know, I, I, I enjoy the club level matches. I, I have soured a little bit towards, um, you know, PRS, NRL, two-day matches. Um, you know, what I'm seeing out there... I guess it's just not my style as much as it once was because what I'm seeing out there is that, you know, you want to give guys um, their money's worth. And right. so, yeah, you got guys that are, that are flying, so you got plane tickets, you got hotels, you know, you got rental cars, you got the cost of all the things. And so you don't want to, you don't want to bring them in for, for just a day or, or whatever it is. You want to, you want to give them, you want to fill two days worth of shooting. And so you've got, you know, 20 stages or 22 stages across two different days. Um, and you're keeping guys moving and hopping the entire time. And to me, I feel like we're pushing people a little too hard. Why, what's wrong with backing down to 18 stages, 16 stages? Yeah. Taking these days a little bit shorter, um, maybe giving guys a little bit longer on on each of the stages you know why are we why are we pushing people so hard you know for for 60 second stages or 90 second stages um you know let's back down the uh, the stage count a little bit bump up the time on each stage for each shooter it all levels out but you're giving guys a little bit more opportunity to learn to understand yes. to kind of go and then if there's an this is sports entertainment there has to be an entertainment factor to it in Really, we always looked at our matches back in the day before any of the series as a destination. Guys would come for a week at times because we used to have like 25 people in our train-ups, you know, and then you'd have a match with uh, 75 shooters because we weren't doing as many at the time. But we'd have 75 shooters, 25 of which came for a week. You know, and you got to keep them, and they always came back. And people always question, well, why does a rifles-only sniper's hide match sell out in a minute? Why does this sell out so fast? Well, because we were a destination, because it was more about the course of fire 
and how that course of fire either validated training or helped you look at your training in a different way versus just repeating what everybody else is repeating and doing the same thing over and over again with, you know, bag, tripod, tripod, bag. You know, yes, we can make stages where those are the answers to everything, but they really shouldn't be the answer to everything. It should be a more of a, of a skill stage split. And like you were saying with the xylophone target, that's a skill. It, it's going to combine your cold bore. It's going to combine your wind reading ability. It's going to combine all these factors that somebody can translate out and take away from, you know? So I don't know. I just think it. There, I, I agree there's some tweaks that could be made. The question is, are they bold enough to make them? Yeah, yeah, and, and probably not uh, is is the answer. You know, we're seeing growth in this industry in a big way. Yeah, and everybody and wants to take advantage. Everybody wants to do that, and everybody wants to take advantage of that. All the new shooters coming in, let's get them plugged into matches, which is great. You know, because they go out to matches and and they're going to get help from the you know from the more experienced shooters. I mean, I I've never been to a match where guys weren't helpful. Right, everybody's helpful. You know, oh, you need here. Try this game changer. You know, no, no, no. Don't set it up that way. Set it up. Turn it on its side and lay it this way. See how that. See how that stabilizes your rifle better. Like guys are, are very helpful. You know, they'll loan gear. They'll help the new shooters. And we want to bring up those new shooters. We want them to have a good time so that they'll get into the game. They'll get into the industry. And that helps out the match directors. That helps out the companies in the industry to sell more products. And you know, that's mm -hmm. that's how those things work. But I think. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, the game side of it uh, has started to look a little bit more like work, like, yeah, like yeah. a job. And I, I'm, I'm a little. I mean, and I always felt that. they should do like if you're going to be a member of the series, regardless of what series it is, it should be because these matches aren't exclusive. They have people who aren't members. They have new, old, this shooter. They have a guys who've moved in and maybe moved out, but still want to participate. We'll have a pro plate and have an amateur plate or have a series plate and a non-series plate where your series plate might be a 1M away and your non-series is 2M away, you know? So then you could say, okay, I'm shooting for a non-series thing. And, 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 you know, that way there... You, you can kind of, those guys who want to go in that direction can go that direction, and yet it, it still helps the other shooters understand, because nothing's worse than a guy who goes to a match and only hits like 10 to 25%. Yeah. That's the most, um, you know, demoralizing thing that can happen is when somebody only hits that 25% or less of the targets. Yeah. So you kind of want to play it where it's not so... Like you said, where where it's not so hungry, where you're like, oh, I gotta get it, I gotta get it, and then they end up blowing it. Where you could say, here's this other side, and all it takes is putting two plates up. You, hey, man, what are you? Well, I'm, I'm on this side. I'm on the I'm on the amateur side, or I'm on the non-series side. Okay, you're shooting the red plate. The series side is shooting the green plate. You know, or you're shooting the big plate and the little plate is just as easy to say. And then that guy can actually get more hits and do some more, and just know. Well, you're really, if you want to compete for a level in your points, you're, you're, you're in the series side. If you don't want to compete with that, you got no liability, you got no, and, and maybe it becomes a prize table thing or, you know, we only, we're only going to reward the non, like first, second, and third on the non-series, but the series people 
are going to get their own price table or the non-series are going to get this price table. You can split things up without a whole lot of extra work and still cater to a wider audience. And I think that is, you know, you know, just to shout out Shannon at K&M with the Gap Grind, uh, you know, and George Gardner putting those the Gap Grind together. Um, that's why that match is so much fun, to me anyway, is because it's, it's a lot of exactly what you just said. You know, you've got a pro shooter and an amateur shooter paired up, and that amateur shooter is not expected to perform at right. the same level as the pro shooter. And so there's different targets, and, and it's, um, you know, it's scaled a little bit to allow the amateur shooter to still get a good number of hits. It's still going to be challenging, of course. I mean, these are <laughs> this is Shannon's matches. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy knows how to do stuff um, and make it challenging. Uh, and it's going to be that. But at the same time, that, that brand new shooter, um, he's going to leave going, man, that was great. You know, I still was able to get some hits. I was able to work with a pro shooter who helped me learn wind and, and all these things. That match is my favorite by far throughout the entire year because of the way that it's designed. Yeah. Now, prize tables and sponsors and all that kind of stuff, that's, that's another animal that I'm not quite sure we've all you know, ironed out how to make that work just yet because the current system, I, I feel like, is, uh, it, it, it tends to take advantage of the, um, of the industry companies uh, a little bit too much. And I'd like my personal take on that, I'd like to see a little bit of change there. I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but as far as matches go, exactly what you're saying you know th there's a way to set up a match where the pros can shoot the way that they need to shoot and be challenged and the ams can shoot the way they need to shoot and be challenged and um and i think there's a place for both of those even within the same match yeah and and uh, i find and to me i think it's even easier coming off the cup last weekend we did a team and individuals at the same time if you came up and you were a team you shot the same course as an individual we just adjusted the times and running them that way, to me, and made no difference, was just as easy. So it's pretty simple where you can do this. And, and just, you know, it's going to require a little more steel because you're going to put an extra piece, you know, and it's going to require some thought. But after that, it's really no different. You're in practice score all the same. You're going to hit the same buttons. And it's just because there's not a second guy shooting, you know, all the rest of them go to a miss versus the hits so you basically line up practice score so the team fills up every box but when the individual shoots half the boxes aren't used and you just put them to zeros you know and, and so that makes it score pretty easily but it, it's it, it's doable it's just somebody's got to step up and do it mm -hmm. yeah and you know one of the reasons and coming kind of coming back to your class one of the reasons that i i took your class and, and i appreciate your your class a lot is because I mean, you've got ways in the class, uh, if, you, if you find yourself in a class full of competition shooters, well, you can tailor your class towards competition shooters. We found ourselves this weekend um, in a class where there was maybe two or three of us that were right. competition uh, savvy shooters, um, and the rest were brand new and mostly hunting related. And what I appreciate, and actually what I was hoping for in this class, was to get that practical real world side of of precision rifle you know um you know i used to be in law enforcement uh and the training that we did in law enforcement was so strictly tailored towards what is realistic what is practical you know you look at statistics and you and you 
and you derive from statistics that, oh, most gunfights happen inside of seven yards or, or closer, you know, at night against multiple attackers. Okay, well, then all of my training is going to be geared towards dealing with threats inside of that space. Um, precision rifle, you know, when it looks, you know, you, ha you do train military and law enforcement people, but for the rest of us who just kind of want some more of those practical skills, I think it kind of tends to relate best in the hunting mm -hmm. world. And, you know, we need to have skill sets within precision rifle that allow us to go out into the field, spot an animal, range it, and engage it quickly. And, you know, that's where the practical side of this stuff comes in. And I really appreciate the way you teach your class because I feel like we got that this weekend, you know, from... Well, even the tripod, we guys yeah. took it out to distance, and you know, you're shooting that little house cat we have at 900 and hitting it. Yeah, off the tripod, that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, we have enough on the line, we can give enough people experience with those different tools, and to say, here, try the tripod. And even the guys, like, I, I left my vice in my bag uh, from my trips, so I couldn't put those stocks in it that way. We, we put those guys on Mike's gun. And we set Mike's rifle up on a tripod for the guys that didn't have the ability to use our tripod system. And they were able to experience his AX6 Creedmoor off of a really right stuff tripod and get as many reps as they wanted off of it. Yeah, it's not their rifle, but then they can see what this rifle did. Usually I do have that vice is usually attached to the leg of my tripod. I just had it off from... um being in the airplanes all off and putting it in my bag and it's sitting on top of my bag right now. But that's part of it is, is, is giving guys that exposure to multiple disciplines, mm -hmm. you know, without focusing on one too much. Cause I'm just a foundation guy. I'm not here. Can I tweak it to be, you know, specific? Sure. But I'm having better luck and I'm trying to stay within my lane of being a foundation instructor versus trying to be some cool guy to everything yeah yeah and i and i think you know there's a growing uh crowd of people that just really appreciate the fundamentals of marksmanship and i'm i for one am, am pretty happy with that uh, i would love you know somebody commented to me actually through uh through facebook posts you know i posted on facebook that i had taken your class or whatever and one of the comments was something like you know hey i took I took Shannon Kay's class, you know, how's, maybe he said something like, how's this compare? And, <clears throat> you know, my response, 100% honest and heartfelt is, I think everybody should do both. I think you should go to K&M and you should take a class, uh, you know, a precision rifle kind of competition style class from K&M. And I think you should come to Frank. Yeah, Alley. I mean, he has all the props. I mean, totally. His range is set up for that stuff. I would go there for that. Yeah, and then the other the other part of that is I think you should take a Frank uh, Frank Galley class, you know, and learn fundamentals. Probably Frank first, and then the other one. I mean, Shannon teaches fundamentals too, but you know, I've taken a class from them, uh, and we spent quite a bit more time diagnosing um, what shooters are actually you know doing on a consistent basis and making tweaks. Hey, you're doing this. You're not lined up right, quite you know, quite right behind the rifle let's let's do this and let's practice it this way you spent quite a bit more time um diagnosing shooter errors and helping guys fix that first mm -hmm. let's get that foundation built you know mike was saying you know let's build the foundation then we'll put up the walls then we'll put on the roof right you right and I, and i agree man go out to other instructors i don't ever discourage anybody from going to seeing anybody else 
and I know that my program is going to be slightly different than their program and you'll get something from everybody. I mean, yeah, there's probably a, a guy that you don't want to see out there who's just sitting behind you and letting you shoot all day on their range. Okay, that's a different deal. But like a place like a K&M that is, is a Disneyland with the rides and everything are already there. They're in concrete. They're not going anywhere. I don't have that. You know, I'm not working in that direction. Could we go out and start building this place up and make it like a K&M? Probably, but then we'd have to buy the cows off the line, you know, um, and, and do that kind of stuff. But I, that's not where my focus is because there's facilities that do that on a much better level than me. You know, um, we, heck, we just had a student from Alaska who actually from the lower 48 came up to Alaska. He just shot a police sniper, like a um, comp, some type of uh, uh, like a rodeo for police shooters. And he won it. And he was he wrote Mark and I and he's like, dude, your fundamentals. I won my first. I entered into this, you know, little rodeo shoot for L.E. and we won it. And it's like, there you go, man. So it, it it's fundamentals work. You know what I mean? And, and you just have to, how do you put them in the context of what you want to do? Because there are different disciplines that have different levels of that. But at the same time, you'll adapt quicker. You'll be able to move from here to there in a much easier place than trying to relearn how to adapt your bad habits to this new situation. And all we're doing is making it more efficient for you. And that's great. I'm all about that efficiency. What, what can we do, you know, with the least amount of effort, least amount of work to get the job done in a proper way, you know, effective. And without overthinking it. Without overthinking it. I mean, that is, that's like basically the definition of efficiency. And yeah. I'm yeah. all about that, you know, when it comes to, to work in a, a complex system or what could be a complex system between, you know, bags and bipods and rifle and scopes and you know, drop data and wind and taking all of that into its simplest form and streamlining it. And I think, you know, you've done a great job with that. And, and I mean, speaking of that, you asked me about yesterday, last night when we were eating, you were saying how I was, I was not super deep into the ballistic side of things mm -hmm. because that's where if I start throwing too much numbers at people, I'll see half the class start nodding off. So we've backed off of that, backed off of that to only what matters to the, the majority of people where, yeah, I can get deep into the weeds and go really deep and start talking about all these different elements. But for most people, they start, their eyes start glazing over. And, and through, you know, attrition, it's like, eh, that's not really resonating with enough people. So let's make it as simple as possible for them without having to get too deep. You know, if that individual wants to get deeper, he can go buy Brian's books and he can read it down to the nth level. You know, but for most guys, we'd rather work on them and take that WTF approach and just hone in on those part of it. You know, what do you need to get the hit? What do you need to set up your software? Or what do you need to get? How do you gather data? Like Mike had told you, you can now, whether you want to use software or not, if you follow the same method we went through, you can gather all that data and you'll understand how it works without having to get too deep into the ballistic side of it. I mean, would I like to give a big ballistics class? Sure, because to me it's fun and it's easy. But I get more heads nodding, you know? Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I appreciated about the class too. It's actually a little bit of an eye-opener for me is that you know, prior to your class, if I, wanted to, if I wanted to gather dope, you know, I'd go out to the square range, 
uh, at 100 yards, and I'd put a five-shot group down there shooting over my lab radar and get my chronograph numbers, you know, because I need my muzzle velocity, right, in order to figure out my dope and, and all that kind of stuff. And you guys kind of worked it backwards, you know. I mean, you had us doing a group at 100 yards to make sure that, that our zero was correct. But then, you know, we were quickly stretching it out to farther distances, and I didn't see a chronograph all weekend, right. you know. And, and, and then you're figuring out, okay, hey, you know, you're a tenth low at 600 yards. So, you know, out to 600 yards, let's, let's tweak your muzzle velocity in your software just the tiniest little bit uh, until the numbers start to line up, you know. We're tweaking the, the BC out past that distance to make the numbers line up. Um, and, uh, and it worked really well. It's faster. Um, mm -hmm. That's one of the things. We've tried every method, and we found like that 600 yard, almost exactly like you did in your video, basically waterline at 600 yards, get them a, a rough number because the, most people's software is going to change that chronograph number anyway. So I'm not going to waste your time in the class. I, I mean, we used to chronograph everybody. It takes too much time, and if it's just going to change the number, why did we do it? You know, it just becomes an exercise in, well, this is how it works, but it's changed. So now I think it works a little better working the number backwards and then getting people lined up quicker. And, you know, we had the guys who were in the class previously didn't have to change any of their software from last year. It all worked and they were fine, you know. So it, it, becomes, it becomes a little bit better for the software to keep up with what we're doing by tweaking that muzzle velocity at 6 and then if we need a fine-tune at 8 or beyond with your BC, it, it, the, the software doesn't need as big a changes as often, I guess is the easier way to put it. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a great class. Um, you know, finishing out on Sunday, we kind of did a, you know, a few different things. Um, we had to kind of revisit some wind a little bit for some guys, which was fine because yep. I was a little slow in gathering. Even as simple as it is, for whatever reason, I was overthinking the whole you know, what mile per hour your gun is thing. And it, it, I think I've got it now, and it's really simple. Um, and I'll use it going forward. Uh, we worked some tripod stuff, which was a lot of fun. I mean, we were getting, we got hits at what, what was the one just inside of a mile? Was it 1,500? Yeah, 1,500, but he was hitting. Yeah. yeah, we were getting shots off of tripods at 1,500 yards. Um, and it did. And it's an Ipsic. Yeah, it's an Ipsic. And it did not seem all that difficult, to be honest. And I was just, you know, that was crazy. That kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, and then you guys, you know, kind of finished out by just opening up the range and, and letting guys shoot whatever they, whatever they wanted. And, uh, you know, just kind of refocusing on some of the targets. You know, for me, uh, after the mile thing, I went back to that 800 yard truing bar, mm -hmm. um, which I really appreciated that, that whole truing bar thing. And for guys that are listening in, like, what's he talking about? Or haven't seen Frank's videos. He uses this truing bar all the time. And this particular one that I'm talking about is at 800 yards. And I believe it, it seems like it's about a four-inch bar. A five and three-quarter to be two-tenths wide. Okay. It, so, so it's two-tenths is what we did. Each chewing bar, because there's one at two, three. The four was down. We had moved it because the cows had kind of messed with it a bit. And I have others I just haven't put up yet. But the goal for our chewing bar is 0.2 mil wide at that yard line. Yeah. yeah, so I went back to that 800-yard chewing bar. Um, I had my wind at that point, and I was just so surprised to find, you know, that my factory boxed ammo, you know, at at 800 yards was it was no trouble hitting that yes. that narrow little truing bar, you know, once we'd gotten everything ironed out. So that was kind of a final confirmation for me after kind of running the gamut of things that we did, come back to that 800 yard distance, which is a great 
you know, it's a practical distance, you know, some would argue maybe not super practical for hunting scenarios, but for competition, we obviously go anywhere from 200 to 1200 yards typically. So that 800 yard line is a, is a good practical, yep. you know, way to, to figure out whether your dope is on. And, uh, I was just smacking that thing and that I left pretty happy with that. You know, that was great. Awesome. Yeah. And, and with the opening the range up, there's such a variety of steel. It makes it where if we told you to shoot the LaRue and you wanted to shoot the little bitty diamond, you can go back and shoot the diamond, mm-hmm. you know, cause we, we try to put a big and small target at every yard line. So that way there, if, if you can handle it, it's like, shoot the big, shoot the big. Okay. Go to the small. And maybe some guy can't shoot the big, shoot the big, shoot the big. Okay. You're done. You know, we'll see that in a class and, and, and default people who can to a smaller target and you know people who can't like even the five inch plates at 500 when we ran the rack you'll see some guys go through and hit all seven you'll see other guys hit two you know and it just goes to show you where that break off is you know that guy can hit a minute that guy can't he's a two minute guy you know and so it, it doesn't discourage either way it basically shows you a little bit of both that there's a small target out there that's going to push everybody and then there's a bigger target that'll make even the, the, the new guys feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the goal for like a shooter of your experience level is how centered up can you get it? You know, that plate should be, you probably remember, Mike, how often does Mike talk about the turn and movement of the plate and trying to get it to go straight back versus picking a side and having it twist? Yeah. You know, he mentioned that at least four or five times throughout the weekend is that we're looking at the twist and how to read the twist of a plate. And so, you know, we want you to be able to center it up so it goes straight back and not twisting. And, and that's, that's part of it. But no, this is great. I really appreciate you coming out. Um, I, other than the two phone calls that came in, hopefully we'll get this piece together. But we got a good, good cast here, and I appreciate you, you taking the course and talking about it, coming on the podcast and all that stuff. Yeah, I thought it was a great class. Um, I will highly recommend it. And, uh, you know, mile high too. you know, coming out here ahead of time and, um, you know, purchasing a, an AI rifle and, and Mike at mile high was amazing. These guys were so helpful. And, you know, you, this is my first time to mile high shooting and you, you walk into this, this, uh, you know, this storefront, this retail yeah, it's like store. a broom closet, it's like a broom closet, man. Like it's tiny, but everything in this tiny little space is like super nice high dollar stuff. And uh, it's, uh, it's a candy land for, for people yeah, like And then you this. go in the back in the warehouse, and oh, it's full to the ceiling. They're, they're actually building a new building right around the corner. Okay. If we go down here and come around the backside of these buildings, right, like, almost where McDonald's is and down across, it's going to be a brand-new building. That's awesome. Yeah, because they're outgrown this one. I was just going to say, they've got so much stuff packed into this warehouse. Um, but you know, it's, it's a one-stop shop, you know, and, and, uh, and I definitely shopped <laughs> this, yeah. this time around. Wait, look at me. I bought my, you see me, I just ordered my barreled action came in. I, I'm buying every time I come in here, I buy something. Yeah. It, you can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike's a really good salesman too. So people leave your, leave your wallets in the car. If, you, if you're going to talk to, <laughs> ask for somebody else. <laughs> don't don't nice. talk to Mike. <laughs> And Mike gave us a joke. I almost recorded it, but we didn't have it. He had some joke this morning. We missed it. But he's in the other – for the guys looking for Mike on the podcast, he's about 20 feet away from us on the other side of the door. But, uh, no, Joe, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming out. It was great having you there this weekend. And uh, we had a fun time. And Colin as well, excellent shooters, both of you. 
it was it was a really good time. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We really appreciated it. Awesome.